Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. So this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I'm doing a series with uh, several economists. I have Professor David Berger. He's an associate professor of economics at Duke University. And we're going to talk about uh, monetary policy and housing and labor and finance and things like that. So, David, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, the reason I wanted to do a series and speak to a bunch of economists is, um, you know, I'm asking myself every day, what's going to happen with the economy, you know, especially with the coronavirus. And, you know, we'll, and I find that most people I talk to either don't want to contemplate what's going to happen or they just throw their hands up and they say, I don't know. You know? So I figured I'd ask economists because they think about stuff like this all the time. So that's, you know, part of the reason I wanted you on if you're okay with that. Totally, totally fine with that. You know, yeah. economists do like to equivocate, though, so maybe I won't give you the straight answers you desire, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, no problem. Well, tell me a little bit about um, what you typically think about in the economic context, and then, you know, how do we relate that to what's happening today? Sure. So I research, I'm, I, I would, what I, I'm, I'm what I would call an empirical macroeconomist, so sort of a generalist. I research a variety of topics, typically on the interactions between government policy and the housing markets um, and issues around imperfect competition in the labor market. So that's a big word. It just means that, you know, there's some firms that have a lot of uh, power to set wages and wanting to, we want to kind of understand their economic effects. So those are some of the two big questions. Okay. So maybe housing first. So does the government have a goal in terms of housing? Is it that you know, they'd like every family you know, the head of the household to own a house? Is that their, their goal? Like, you know, 100% home ownership if possible, the American dream, or do they even have a goal? That's a good question. Um, you know, that's not stated, although, you know, you would arguably think that given, like, the huge government subsidies we have towards home ownership. I mean, primarily through the um, home interest mortgage deduction, which essentially subsidizes people to take, to buy bigger homes and to be homeowners. and makes it cheaper to own than the rent. Um so I, I do think there is like a fair amount of government subsidies that would make you think that that's what the government wants. Um, although more, I, I guess I, I focus, focus less on the structural issue, like sort of the long-term issues. I focus more on like how they intersect with um, like cyclical policies. So like what happens in recessions? What should we do? What do we typically, how do we want to like prop up housing markets? Um, how does monetary policy work through the housing markets? Things like that. Yeah, like right now, and this is, you know, armchair economics for me, but, um, you know, I see all the stimulus money. Um, I see the interest rates are, are zero, and they've been so low for so long. So I'm, I'm seeing like a boom right now in refinances and purchasing, et cetera. But I have the feeling, and I don't know if this is right, like I don't see how interest rates are going to stay where they are. So I think that once they start rising, the housing market, you know, has not been used to any interest or very high interest. And they get, it's going to like go into a shock and, a downturn, and I don't know when it is, but that's my guess. I don't know what. What do you think? I mean, I think for sure, currently, housing markets are being propped up by like historically low interest rates. I, I mean, I can only speak my own experience. Uh, I bought a home for the first time in um, November, and I'm already trying to refinance. 
um, because rates have fallen even further and it's like just incredibly cheap. But you're absolutely correct. I actually wrote a paper recently with some co-authors at uh, UChicago in, um, and in, uh, in Northwestern where we look at uh, like these sort of issues, which is that you know, if you look at like mortgage interest rates or long-term 30-year interest rates, they've been falling for 30 years, right? And so what does that mean? That means it's like there's been these sort of like positive headwinds towards allowing people to just like keep to buy housing. And what's going to happen, you know, rates can't go, nominal rates can't go below zero really or not that much below zero. So what's going to happen now, now that they kind of reach to sort close? And we've been trying to think about that kind of question. And how does that, what does that imply for what the Fed has to do going forward? Well, I remember in like 2007, 2008, um, the lending rules appeared to be really lax. And I guess that was an additional, you know, way to facilitate home ownership, you know, probably a self-destructive one, as it turns out. But maybe that's what's uh, next. I don't know. There's a loosening of the restrictions. Oh, sure. I mean, so I, I worked on another project. There's a, there was a policy that they enacted um, in 2008 through 2010 called the uh, first-time homebuyer credit. So the idea of this was let's the government would give you $8,000 to go buy a house um, if you hadn't bought a house before. And I think the idea was that since a lot of the, the crisis and the Great Recession like originated in the housing market, this was going to sort of like throw water into the flames to try to quell it a little bit. Um, but to, to your point, the first form of that policy was was a, like a non-refundable tax credit that basically is a loan you had to pay back. And not that many took, took it up. So the government would give you $8,000, but you had to pay it back. When it really started to take off was when they allowed you to borrow the money up front and use it directly on the down payment. Um, that's when it really, really took off. Um, because basically for most people, the main constraint of buying a house is that putting the money up front. Right, the down payments and everything, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So once the government finally figured out how to target it, that really had a big effect. You know, because if, if you're buying, let's say, a $200,000 house, you know, $8,000 is a lot of money, but it's only 4%. But if you're buying a $200,000 house and you're buying it with a, what's called an FHA mortgage, which is the primary mortgage for, for some home buyers, you know, you can put as little as three and a half, four percent down. Basically, the eight thousand dollars covers that whole amount. So that really amplifies people's ability to like get into the housing markets. Now, whether or not that was a good idea is an entirely separate question. But I agree with you. You if you lower down payments, it would definitely increase home ownership. Well, do you think that uh, you know there's a bag of tricks, and that's what's one of the few things left in the bag, or? Like, what, what do you see playing out over the next six months or a year? Anything different? Or do you think that this, this boom may sustain itself for a while? Or are there other factors no, coming? I, I, I think this COVID-related stuff is separate from the great, um, you know, the great Recession in the sense that, you know, in the Great Recession, a lot of the problems were precipitated by the housing market. You know, there was a huge decline in house prices. Houses were highly indebted that, you know, as a result, they, you know, there, there are rules on when you can refinance. Essentially, you have to have a certain amount of money in your house, um, at least 20% equity. And so obviously, when your home value falls, you have don't have that money, then you can't take advantage of a lot of the Fed policy, like because then you can't refinance, you can't get a lower interest rate on your mortgage and lower payments. Um, whereas COVID doesn't really, you know, didn't originate in the housing markets. So I, I, I don't think, you know, we're going to need to do anything directly in housing markets except until unless, you know, we keep, we have such high unemployment for a long time, you know, right now we have forbearance. So basically you can delay your, your mortgage payments. Um, And that's like kind of worked. Okay. As far as I can tell. Um, And also because unemployment insurance benefits have been so generous, 
many people, even who aren't when they're not working, and to be clear, we didn't want them working because you know this is an infectious disease, um, were able to pay their mortgage or ever to pay their rent. You know, of course, that stuff's supposed to um, expire at the end of July, and that could be an absolute disaster then, because then there's just going to be a ton of you know a ton of foreclosures. Yeah, I'm worried about that. Well, do you deal with the commercial? Uh, market or just residential in terms of, you know, it's not really housing, but housing for businesses. That is true. If you think about commercial, it's a much more complicated issue. Yeah. It's going to be, I mean, the non-paying rent issue, I don't know exactly what they can do. It's, uh, it's going to be a real, real, real problem. Um, so yeah, so I I would think that if they were going to do some policy, it would be focused on the commercial side, not on the residential side. Okay. I don't know if you, if you, if you ponder the commercial side very much, but if not, you know, the, uh, but, uh, to your mind, are there any home policies that seem to work well in the past, even distant past, that should be revived? Or do you see that there should be any revision of you know, government policies towards home ownership now? Or just leave it alone? I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of housing policies. I mean, that uh, would, you know, I mean, I think so again, right now, I think the most important thing is probably extending unemployment insurance. And so making sure, because that's the best targeted uh, sort of money. That's that's like targeting people who need the money the most. I mean, if you're still working, you still have a check. Presume, hopefully, you can still because of lending standards being a little tighter, you're still able to pay rent. You're still able to pay your mortgage. Um, but if we do get in a situation where unemployment insurance is canceled and we start seeing a lot of foreclosures, you know, there's really nice work um, by uh, two researchers at U Chicago that's shown that like you know, you know, there's a big question. You know, in the last crisis of like. How should we deal with foreclosure? Should we just like forgive rent and forgive principal? Or should we sort of try to lower the payments they pay? And they kind of target different things. So the issue, one thing is like, is it the fact that I owe $200,000 to a bank the problem? Or is the problem that my current payments are too high? And they find that basically the problem is the payments are too high. If you lower people's payments and give people more money, more liquidity, you just lower foreclosures. And that, that's true on a number of dimensions. So I think if we get into a situation where we start seeing foreclosures uh, rising a lot, I would strongly be in favor of, you know, government policies that would lower payments. Yeah, that makes sense. That ties directly into uh, them preserving what they have. Yeah, like so, for example, you know, there was a program in the last recession called the Home um, called um, HARP, the Home Affordability Refinancing Program. And that, what that basically did was the government stepped in and allowed banks to refinance people's homes, even if they didn't have enough money in the, in the, in the house, enough equity. Um, and I think that would be a useful policy to resume doing. Um, and similarly, something, yeah, other policies to sort of lower payments would be quite helpful. Like, for example, like lengthening the maturity. So instead of having a 30-year mortgage, you could go to a 40-year, and that would at least lower the payments. for. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Um, what other uh, aspects of, of economic policy do you, again, do you focus on? So, um, I mean, right now, the big debate is about this unemployment insurance. Um, so roughly speaking, you know, right now, um, the way it works is, you know, you get unemployment insurance at the state level. Um, and it's based on your previous earnings. But there's just massive differences across how, how generous the states are um, and how quickly they can administer that money. So, for example... I mean, not to name names, but like many of the southern states typically have had problems, you know, Florida notoriously in paying out them. Um, the unemployment benefits, they've, you know, they got millions more than they were um, than they ever have had before. And it's such velocity. So, for example, you know, in one week, they got the same number of claims as the first six months of the Great Recession. You know, they have millions of claims. So they were just unprepared to do it. 
Um, and moreover, you know, like say in North Carolina, the maximum amount you can be getting from the government, um, from the state government is $350, no matter how much money you made. So, you know, that is not particularly generous. Whereas in um, Illinois, where I used to live, it's more than double that. So with the government, so with the federal government, there's massive differences across how generous and how effective they are at administering this across states. And then what the federal government did was, they'll say whatever the state is giving you, they're going to add six hundred dollars to it. Um, but that's about to expire. And that is, and so the adding the six hundred dollars, the so that's very generous. It's very well targeted. We didn't want people working. Um, it's particularly generous to people who make less money proportionally. Um, the problem, and I put problem in quotation, quotation marks because I'm, I'm not personally convinced of the problem, is that there's a moral hazard effect. What does that mean? That just means that it might deter people from going back to work. You know, you might be earning more not working than working. And so then when someone tries yeah, to- Yeah, I, I, I heard that was a problem. Why not set a ceiling on a percentage, even if it's 100% of what you made while you were working? Why go just this arbitrary $600 amount? Okay, so um, well, so my understanding of how this happened, um, uh, well, so is that what happened is some very well-meaning staffers in some senator's office, they can they use some data to calculate what would be the amount of money on average, they took the mean, to make the average person have a, you know, what's called a 100% replacement rate, replace 100% of their earnings, right? And you're asking, why didn't they just cap it at one? Well, it's just simpler, so they, they decided to add a number, um, the problem is, is that the average amount that people make per week is, is skewed by the, some people earning a lot of money. It's much bigger than what the median is. And so what that meant is there's a ton of people, more than 50% of people probably, who are on unemployment, who are earning more than they were you know, earning not working than, but working than, than when, when they were working. Um, now, why didn't they you know, just say, why don't we do something simple? Like say, you can, get the, you can only get as much in payments that's what you're asking. Why didn't they, why don't we make it so you only get as much as payments as you were working before? Is that what? Right. Yeah. yeah why not have a cap? You know, that's the maximum you can get. It's a hundred percent of what you're making before. So now we get into politics. This is uh, it's not simple enough. Uh, one. And number two, you're again, remember U S states, we have a federal system. U S states are implementing this. Each state has written the code to implement, um, you know, the, the unemployment insurance system separately. Some are very well administered in a very modern code. Others are running in things like Cobalt, an almost an archaic language. And my understanding is even moving from adding a fixed amount of number to multiplying a huge amount of number would take the states months. And so it's it, it's basically where, you know, administrative ca- in, in capability is what I've heard. Insane, completely insane. <laughs> No, I know this because uh, my probably my closest friend in economics, uh, Joe Vavra at UChicago, he wrote a paper pointing out this fact that many, many people are earning more money not working than working. And he's been getting yeah. yelled at um, by policy people because they're just they're saying he doesn't understand the administrative constraints. And, you know, to be perfectly huh. honest, I'm not sure we were aware of the administrative constraints. I mean, it's not really his job to be constrained by that. But, um, I mean, it's pretty amazing that we're just unable to do it. Um, I, I, I don't really know what to tell you. It's, it, it's just honestly stunning to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, true. To a multi- multiplication sign is like impossible. And, you know, in a, you know, we have the best tech sector in the entire world, and this is just like infeasible. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So what, what is your guess on 
what happens next when they expire? Will they just vote to renew them? Or, you know, what will be the excuse at that point? What do you think will happen? I mean, I think they're going to vote to extend it, but at a lower number. I bet it'll be like three or $400 instead of $600. Okay. That, you know, that would be okay. Um, I think it would be incredibly damaging to not do it because that is, I mean, so for example, the reason why we know um, that it was very generous is it, it just showed up in the national statistics. If you looked at the personal savings rate, it went up um, to like, which is basically how much are people saving as a fraction of their income? It go, went up 30% in, the, uh, in April. Now, part of that is huh. once home, you know, we can't go to a restaurant, you can't spend the money. But a lot of it is that some very, you know, the, 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 we had a very progressive UI system. It was really, we gave a ton of money to the lowest end of the income distribution. Um, so what I'm concerned about is now that people are kind of working and if we cut it off completely, these people are gonna be very, very desperate. And, and, and to be clear, I think there's one other aspect of COVID that makes it, you know, so the traditional argument is, I, you know, I don't want to deter people from working. And that, that makes total sense to me in normal times. But right now, you know, there are these externalities from working. You know, if you work, the whole point is that we don't want you to infect other people. You know, so what we don't want is a lot of very desperate people going back into the workforce while infected because they are unable to get on. You know, unemployment is not generous enough. You know, we already have public health crisis is bad enough as it is already in America. We don't need to make it work. Hmm. Um, I had I've started to see bankruptcies now hitting the news like every day, multiple ones. What um, I mean, what's your thoughts on, uh, you know, these bankruptcies continue and accelerate and become pervasive? I mean, the. I think that'll mean jobs not available. Um, yeah, so you which know, which means people won't be able you know, to spend. I mean, what, what do you, think? Cel- you know, many many of the president's advisors were celebrating the the last jobs report because on on paper many people were hired back. But the truth is, if you look at the number of permanent job losses, it's, it's increasing every month. Um, and your point, it's you know every every day you look around. I don't I don't know where you are right now, but like you know in Durham, you know restaurants are closing. And that may be permanent. You know, once you go into bankruptcy, it's hard to reverse that. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very concerned because so my reading of the current evidence of the the source of what's going on right now is that this this recession is a little bit different than other recessions in that it's being driven on the the consumer side by the fact that um, richer households are not spending money. They're, you know, they're basically... For example, they don't have, they don't they don't feel safe going to restaurants. They you know they cut back on travel. They've cut back on restaurants, and you know they're maybe perhaps unsure about their own employment, and they're just sitting on the sidelines. And that's devastating a lot of retail, um, and you know so bars, gyms, restaurants, so on and so forth. But I don't see that getting any better until the public health stuff is under wraps. Um, and I don't see that getting better anytime soon. Again, I'm not a, you know, an epidemiologist, but it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon. So I, I'm very concerned. Yeah. Mm. How do you, uh, what, what constitutes a, a permanent job loss? How do you know that, uh, like, where does that data come from? How do you know if something is a permanent job loss or not? Oh, so m- mostly just when, you know, when you're laid off, they ask if you're likely to be recalled or not. Um, so like, for example, you know, at the beginning of, uh, the, the, the COVID, you know, my wife was, um, you know, her, her employer shut down and they, but they, they knew that they were going to be recalled. Does that make sense? But sometimes they just, they say, you know, your job is no longer there. And that, that's what I mean by permanent job loss. Oh, okay. But there are figures kept of which jobs are uh, permanently lost and which ones are just temporary. Yes, there are. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not mentioned. 
Conveniently or inconveniently, well, but yeah. You know, it's mentioned in, yeah, and, yeah, that's not mentioned. It's mentioned in econ, you know, Twitter, uh, but no, yes, exactly. It's not mentioned publicly that much. But no, I'm very concerned. I mean, honestly, like if you think about the public health challenges, I mean, I, I, I just don't know. Like it doesn't seem to me safe to go to restaurants and eat inside or go to a gym and work out inside. And I don't know when that's going to get better. So I don't know what to do about those businesses, you know, unless the government wants to build them out, which I, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't know what to do about well, that. Well, I, I, I can see locally, you know, I'm in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. So I can see locally, like businesses don't know what to do either. Like, I, I, you know, I'll look at a strip mall of 10 businesses and every different business does things in a different way. Some will let you in, some won't. Some will only do curbside. Some won't do anything. So, you know, like no one knows what to do. There's no clear guidelines. So everyone's doing something different at different times. That's, that's what I've observed, at least. No, exactly. I mean, look, my, 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 my thought was what, with the, probably the most, you know, again, given the administrative constraints I, I mentioned before, you know, it's, we can't just reinvent new programs right now because, or invent new programs right now because that's just not going to work in real time with this, the speed at which we need to execute this stuff. So, I mean, my, my, my plan would be for restaurants, you know, my sense is that, you know, they can't be profitable work, you know, operating at, you know, 50% capacity, which is kind of what they need to be doing for public health reasons. So you probably yep. have some of the workers on unemployment insurance, and then we need to extend um, credit to these businesses to basically keep the overhead afloat. You know, the, the, the current PPP guidelines were much more about maintaining payroll, but less about rent. And like fixed costs. And I think they're going to need to extend money for rent. Otherwise, as you pointed out, we're going to have a catastrophe in the commercial real estate market too. Um, So I just think there needs to be much more government assistance in that um, toward, because realistically, uh, you know, in North Carolina, and I can't speak for Texas, but just like, as it seems like Texas has the same issues, you know, we're going to need to provide much more support to those workers and firms to sort of stay around because, you know, once you go bankrupt, once they close down, you know, you lose a lot of disruptive stuff. Like we think COVID's going to end eventually. And so we don't want all these restaurants, all these businesses to go out of business because once they have that and they, st- they stop, it's just really hard to stop back, start it back up again. Um, yeah, right. But I mean, the other thing that is that we need to be doing um, that I'm super concerned about is opening, you know, elementary schools. I, you know, so many people uh, have young children. I mean, I, I don't, but many people do. And my understanding is it's quite hard to work from home. Even if you're lucky enough to work from home, it is quite hard to do so with children running around. I just cannot believe we're not like spending a huge amount of resources, federal resources, trying to figure out how to make it safe for kids to go to school. Because, you know, you miss school for a year. That's, you know, it's a permanent effect on your whole like lifetime human capital. You know, how much, you know, how much stuff you know. So it's, it's a problem. Yeah, the socialization component too. You know, it's uh, it's it's terrible to have kids not being able to go to school and see their friends. You know, they didn't do anything, and they don't seem to be affected nearly as much by this. But uh, you know, you don't want to send them back to like maximum security prisons where they sit in a, a cubicle, they can't interact with other students, and they, you know, it's, totally. it's, it's terrible. Right, exactly. And because kids are you know less at risk for you know the adverse health consequences of COVID, you know, having them play with each other doesn't seem that big a deal. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you just need to have to be a little more social distance. But my understanding is, you know, online learning doesn't work that well for people in like second grade. You know, maybe in high school you could do it, um, or right. you know, late middle school. 
but you just can't, you know, people have to work. And, you know, if you can't work, um, you just can't work the same way with having your kids running around, you know, so I'm just surprised that we focus so much effort on retail and less on this issue since, you know, this affects like 20% of the workforce. Do you, you see any other um, major forces coming to play over the next six months or a year? Like what, you know, I know it's just a, it's a guess, it's a prognostication, but what do you think will be some of the biggest movers over the next uh, year? Movers of what? What do you mean? You know, of the economy in general, like what do you think it's going to morph into based on what it's already done? You know, what do you, what do you think it'll look like through, you know, you think it'll be stable through the election and then after the election, depending on who wins, it could radically change or do you think it's just going to, you know, it's going to go up or down or sideways or, you know, like what's your guess from here? If you try to prognosticate. I think it's going to muddle along. Um, that would be my, my guess. Um, although if they don't extend, you know, much more federal support to the state governments, then it could be very, very bad. Um, so like in particular, you know, the way we do education in the United States, public education at least, is it's done at the local level, but you know, to do, do it safely for COVID, that requires a lot of money, but money the states don't have. You know, many states have to run balanced budget amendments or balanced budgets. So as a result, they, they cost money, that money needs to come from the federal government. I mean, moreover, individual states can't print money, whereas the federal government at least has the treasury, you know, within limits. Um, right. So I suspect that it's in everyone's interest for some sort of additional unemployment insurance. There will probably be another stimulus check um, and they will give aid to the state governments. And that will be enough, not quite enough, but enough for like things to muddle along, but not get dramatically better. I'm not super optimistic about the fall. Um, because again, I think, uh, you know, so I, I mean, I'm curious what your experience is in Austin, but here... You know, there was a quarantine. I don't think it was as, you know, people took it seriously for sure in March. But I think there's a certain element of self-quarantining going on right now. So, for example, me, I'm not, I don't personally feel comfortable eating inside of a restaurant right now. And so unless things don't change, I just don't see how, you know, my wife and I, we take out food once or twice a week. But I don't think it's, we're not spending nearly as much money on travel and retail and things like that. Um, Yeah. And so... You know, no matter this isn't this you know this, this is a private choice, and I think many people are making similar private choices. So unless the public health situation gets better, I just don't see myself going to a bar anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've I've been around a bit, and I see everything you know that you can imagine. I can see like uh, there's a street where there's a lot of bars, and you know, all the young people are out. Right. They're just you know they feel like everything's cool, and they're out. And then I see other places that are deserted. Um, you know, I've I've checked out the mall, and at first it was like Resident Evil. You know, only like one store was open and no one was there and yeah. it's gotten slowly fuller and fuller. Um, and then I've seen some places that got pretty busy and then, you know, we had a new mask order and then they've gone quiet again. So I know it's hard to say, but, you know, you're right. It is a personal choice. I've seen, I guess, everything you can imagine. Some people are not going out. Some people are going out a lot. You know, from what they tell me, uh, it's just all over the map. Yeah, so that, but that's why I think, I think there's sort of a natural equilibrium to this, like an ebb and flow. So as you said, you know, I think if things started to get better, I think, you know, um, if it got safer, more people will go out. Um, like, for example, young people right now. But as things start to get a little more dangerous, then I think, you know, people will cut back. You know, but as more people go out, the economy gets better. But then as it gets a little bit, you know, that, that may uh, affect the virus. And then people will cut back. So, that, you know, I don't, I don't envision it being an absolute catastrophe. I just kind of see us muddling along, but not a, like a full you know, kind of an extended U-shaped recovery where we're kind of just muddle along for a while. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Because it's not a unified response in any, in any way. 
I guess that's what I see. Like I tell you about the response of all the businesses and the response of all the people is there's like 50 different ways of handling it and everyone's doing something different because there's no clear cut, uh, you know, rule or guidance for everyone. So, yeah. No, totally. Totally. I mean, it's a real shame. You know, a lot of people spend their lives building businesses and then a once in a lifetime event, well, let's hope comes, you know? So. Yeah. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work, your papers, your, your thoughts? Um, the best way is, um, you know, I have an online web presence, mostly a web page. You can just Google me, uh, David Berger, you know, and I, I come up on Google. Maybe one day I'll actually join Twitter publicly and get in the fray. But for now, just enjoying uh, being a lurker. Well, very good, David. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.